Ahoy, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to Truth and Justice. This is our reply brief for the prosecutors, part 11. Took a little bit of a break to listen to some very important full interviews from Jay and Jen, but now we are back on track and we have a lot to dive into, some great questions and observations from our listeners. So without further ado, we of course are sans Zach. You probably figured that out because I'm doing the intro. We miss him. Can't wait to have him back. But let's get into the show. Awesome. Zach is on assignment this week, and we're continuing our streak of I don't know how many weeks it's been with not all three of us on screen at the same time. Can't seem to keep everybody healthy. And truth be told, neither Janet or I are healthy either. We're just more healthy than Zach this week. It's one of those winters, everybody. Yep. And it's going from Michigan to California, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're, before we get into the into the questions and stuff real quick, just to give you guys an idea of where we're at with things. I know there are the overwhelming majority of you guys that are super interested in what we're doing. And I also know there's a bunch of people that are like, okay, we're done with it. Let's move on to the next case. We're getting there. We have, so there are only three reply brief episodes left, the last three. And I, and, and I'm particularly proud of especially the last two. Um, the last one is one of my favorite episodes that I think that I've recorded to date. One of them. So th- those are coming up. And then of course we have uh, Bob Mata, hopefully still, you know, we got things got pushed back. So I haven't touched base with Bob about that, but held that conversation and again as i mentioned last week all of that is while we're prepping for the new season so the, and that is and just so you guys know when we're doing this it's not like we're just mailing these in and sitting around doing nothing like we're quickly at work uh, on the new case right now i spent two and a half hours yesterday was president's day i was off from school i spent two and a half hours interviewing somebody from the new case they have the open records request filed that i was just telling uh janet during the the pregame that that is March 4th, Monday, March 4th is the deadline for them to get me the full case. File. I have some of the case file, but that should be when I by then or sooner, I should have the full case file or a fight on my hands. One of the two. Mm. So we're moving forward with that one. So we're getting there. We're, we're getting towards the end of this one. We're getting towards the beginning of the next one. I'm excited about all of that. And with that being said, what do you think of this one, Janet? You listened to it a long time ago. Did you re-listen to part 11? I did. And I think before I remembered that we were going to be listening to those full interviews, I also listened to part 11 a couple of weeks ago and then realized like, oh, wait, that's not where we are right now. So if anybody else did that, I'm right there with you. There's just uh, a lot. There's been such great stuff that has come out of these reviews. And yeah, this is another really strong one. People had very strong reactions. There's certainly some themes that keep coming up, I think, above and beyond what you're covering with direct respect to, you know, the prosecutor's podcast. There are just things that, you know, people really hone in on for very good reasons, you know, cell phone stuff, car stuff. And I think one of the things that I have appreciated so much about this is people really aren't spending a ton of time dwelling on, which they rightfully could, dwelling on the kind of misrepresentation and taking the opportunity in many cases to just dig back into the facts and right. especially facts that are coming to light or are being having a spotlight shone on them that maybe, you know, slipped past us before. So I do feel like this has been a really positive exercise and nobody's excited to beat anybody else up verbally or otherwise. It's been great to see the positive stuff that's come out of this. Yeah. And, you know, I re-listened to this episode in preparation for this to do the follow up so I can remember everything that we said in that one. It almost feels like it, when we were doing it in real time, it was there. But for me, kind of listening back, even for for me, I'm like, I wish I could go back and do it again. I'm like, I'm spending enough time bickering about them instead of being on the case, like in the first few. But then when we get into this one, one, th- one thing that I think is worth taking away from, I don't know if anybody mentioned it there, is the whole discussion about the car, I think, is important as far as like, did Jay lead him to the car or not? 
And it's the first time that I've really thought about it when I made this episode. And it kind of was a good reminder to me because a lot of what I want to happen from this is for people, you know, we need to get the put the pressure back on and keep this case alive for justice for Hay and for justice for Adnan to make sure that the real killer is brought to justice. And in order to do that, you need to know really how you can represent the beliefs that Adnan is innocent and how you can have those discussions with people that believe that he's guilty. And and, and the car is something that I just kind of had the revelation when I was when I was recording this episode that we got to stop saying, well, they showed Jay where the car is. Right. We got to stop because, as I said in the episode, it's not something we can prove. If we're going to be very objective and honest, we have to be objective and honest with ourselves, too, and say, we don't know that. There is no proof that that happened. We can focus on the things that we can prove. If we state things as fact that we cannot prove as fact, then we're no better than the other side that is stating things as fact that are not fact. So I just want to caution, you know, if, if you I'm sure you heard that in the episode. Yeah, if you didn't pick up on on that, just be thinking about that when you're having those discussions. Like, okay, well, you believe he led him to the car. I don't think that he did. This is the reasons why. But the truth is, not only can neither side prove it, but also neither side's ever going to budge on it. So it's not a place to spend your attention. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I really love that you said that. And I could not agree more. It has been very interesting, too. And we'll see it in some of the questions and comments today for people to be kind of turning that information over in their minds, again, to kind of put a fresh perspective on it or to just just ask those critical questions like, well, would it even make sense if this is how it went down? And that goes in both directions. Like, right. I think that people are really good critical thinkers as to Okay, well, if either scenario is the case, there are some sticking points, I think, in both that it's been interesting and cool to see people kind of pour over. And I think for the most part, on our Facebook page, you do see people very openly saying like, of course, we don't know this. It's just something that nags at you because you wish you did know. Right. And with that being said, why don't we get right into those listener questions? Sure, sure. Okay, so let's pop back to Jay's first interview for a second, because Rachel posted a little something on the page, fully acknowledging, like we sort of pushed past that for a second. But I thought this was really interesting. And I hadn't seen, you know, this come up before in quite this way. So I just wanted to throw this out there. Rachel says, I'm pretty sure, although obviously cannot be 100% certain that when the tape is turned over, again, this is for Jay's first interview, when the tape is turned over, the acoustics in the room change a lot. I would even suggest that side two of interview one might have actually been recorded at a different time and even possibly a different room. Could this be possible? As Jay was making so many mistakes up until they turned the tape over. And as Bob pointed out, they turned the tape off earlier than needed. I know I have no evidence of this. However, I did play a couple of minutes of either side of the recording to my partner. Didn't say why I was doing it. He has been a sound engineer for much longer than me, which suggests Rachel's also a sound engineer. And immediately said the acoustics were different and explained. And then Rachel explained her theory and he agreed. So just kind of an interesting element that I don't think we really talked about, touching on the idea of actual right. difference in sound quality. Yeah. And I definitely noticed that, too. I didn't point it out because I don't know what it means. I don't know. Well, I don't know if anyone has manipulated hmm. if somebody boosted the gain on it or something before I got the file, because it was that was the the second bit, the second seven or ten minutes, whatever it was. It was a short little file with just that. And it was not like the other one where you could tell was very clearly the very raw audio taken directly from the tape. And that's how I could tell that the tape was shut off 15 minutes early because the rest of the blank tape is there with the little and you can hear the ticking and everything from the from the audio. Whereas the other one was just that small section, which means somebody edited that bit, you, you know, so so that's a possibility. 
not to say that's what happened, but I, I can't conclusively say, you know, if it looked just like the other one where after it shut off, then we still had the rest of the 50 minutes of tape or it was, you know, going, then I would say, okay, something's definitely changed here. But the levels were higher on it before I, le- I, I of course, leveled them so that you didn't blow your eardrums out when you got to the second one uh, or the second part. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the levels were a little higher. But the big thing you notice is the background noise is much louder. And then there's also possibilities like did they turn an air conditioner on or turn a sure. heater on or something between the two. But yeah, it's it's worth noting. I just I can't be positive about it because of the way that the audio files came to me. Got it. That totally makes sense. Nick says, and this is kind of getting into Hayes Carr. We've got a series of questions we put together for that. Nick says, if the search for Hayes Carr started immediately, like has been said, then why did they wait five weeks before they pull out put out the bolo? I saw this question. I don't it's, it's a good point. And I need to go back through the case file. But when I read that post by Nick, I got to thinking like all of the when they put it out, you know, countywide, they put out the bolo and they asked for the helicopter. All that stuff came after, I believe, after her body was found. So I don't know why the county wasn't doing that. So because what, what you have is remember the county was investigating this as a missing persons case. And then once the body was found in Baltimore City, it shifted to Baltimore City. And then all those all that stuff came from Baltimore City. So it could have just been. The county wasn't taking it that seriously. They weren't too, I, I don't know. But yeah, it, it is interesting. But I will say this. I don't think that what you have there is that the county already had her car. Because remember, the, the, the officers that have a track record of doing these despicable things, or Ritz and McGillivary, uh, and even Lehman has been caught up in some of it too, those are Baltimore City cops. Prior to Hayes' body being found, they had no idea this was even happening. They had no involvement in this whatsoever. You were dealing with with O'Shea and Adcock with the county, and it was just a missing persons case at that time. It wasn't a murder case at that point. So, yeah, I'm not trying to demean this at all or or to minimize this, but a simple missing persons case that they're like, oh, we found the car. Now, let's No, I think what they're going to do is if that was the case, they would put out like, okay, we found the car at this location. Blast it out there. Did anybody anybody find it there? I just think that's a good indicator that the car probably wasn't anywhere in the county. Okay, and Chrissy in the chat says, wasn't the VIN initially entered wrong or am I misremembering? I don't remember. That. There was something entered wrong when they put it into NCIC. I don't yeah. remember what it was, but there was something that caused it not to go out as a missing persons because they didn't check about they didn't do they did something wrong, yes, when they when they first entered it. Gotcha. Chris says, just in in terms of the park and ride, what kind of parking lot is this? Long-term parking for travelers where a car might be there for days, weeks, or is it commuter parking for parking and then folks ride a train to work? I believe I've been there. I'm trying to think. I, I believe it's just, it's like a carpool place, right? Like, I don't think there's like mass transit next to it or anything. It's like a, a spot near the highway. If I'm remembering correctly, Grayson may be able to. Uh, Grayson says yeah. just a place to park. Yeah. The idea is for people that are carpooling to work or whatever, they can all go park there. They can park there for free, all pile into one car and then go about their business. But yeah, I mean, there, there's cars in parking rides like that. There's cars there all the time. I don't think anybody would be too suspicious of a car that was there that long. But don't forget, the parking ride is the place where they just left the car for a couple of hours, according to Jay. Right. According they just Jay, put it yeah. there. Yeah, they put it there for a couple of hours and they went back and got it, buried the body and moved the car somewhere else. Kristen, I just want to acknowledge and made a really thoughtful, longer post regarding the car, kind of what we were talking about before, like thinking about the ways that it could have ended up, where it ended up, you know, thinking through again this sort of idea. And actually, I'm going to move into Jackie's question because the, there's some stuff that that overlaps there. But just trying to figure out, you know, again, 
who would have been the most likely to move the car in the occasion that the car was moved and what the motivations be. So Chris and I want to acknowledge that great post, send people over there to check it out. It is a longer piece, but it's very well written. But again, there's some crossover with Jackie's. Jackie says, what is the prevailing theory about what happened to Hayes' car keys? If the police did move the car, I could see the killer having taken the keys and hiding or discarding them somewhere so the police would not have access to the keys and would then have to use other means to get the car to move it. But if the police did not move the car, then why would the ignition collar be removed? The killer would have had access to the keys, whether they had a known relationship to Hay and got into her car with permission or if it was a random killer who happened upon her in the car. So either way, this person could have easily moved the car using the keys. If not the police, do you think the car being moved was unrelated to the crime? Someone else tried to steal it? In my opinion, the police moving the car makes the most sense, given the evidence of attempted hot wiring and the keys being nowhere to be found. I mean, all we could really do is speculate about that stuff. One, one thing that I wish had happened was like when the police interviewed Young Lee or Hayes, Hayes family or even like, you know, even though the defense asked about it at trial is, was that cover missing or originally? Because like she only had the card for a couple months, right? So. Like when they bought it, was that like something they noticed that the, this piece was was missing off of there? We don't have any of those answers. I, I I tend to doubt it because when they took it to Hayes, I believe it was her uncle's shop after, you know, they investigated the car, he fixed it up and put a new, like that was one of the things when they show the pictures of the car and like there's a video of the car later the the detectives took and it's fixed. The windshield wiper thing is fixed and the there's a new cover put back on the and I don't know if they got another one or if it was like laying there on the floor somewhere. Mm-hmm. As far as the keys, you know, I, I would assume that regardless of what theory you have is is, you know, if the car got moved and if so by whom, my assumption would be that the the killers took the keys with them and discarded them. Either way, I, I doubt that the killer went back and moved the car. I don't see any any purpose behind doing that. I would think that if it was moved, I would say that it was either moved by the police I kind of doubt that it was, you know, stolen too, because then they, they they went and then if they stole it, I don't think they just go park it in some, you know, public parking space and move it and not take anything out of it. My truck got stolen one time years and years ago, and when the police found it a few weeks later, it was like they took it somewhere and stripped it. They, you know, they called me and said, "We found your truck. It doesn't have a seat. It doesn't have any wheels. There's all the pieces are pulled out of it. The stereo's taken out of it. None of that was done. So I don't see like what's the purpose of stealing it just to move it." So if it was moved, in my opinion, it was moved for a very specific reason. It was to get it away from, well, I mean, my theory is if it was moved, it was moved to get it back into the jurisdiction of these detectives that were doing other shady shit in this case. Yeah. Caroline, another great post, long post on Facebook covering a ton of different points, essentially showing that even, you know, kind of what you were saying earlier about how to argue the point, how to address the people that are saying, you know, that have their kind of bullet points that they lean on accurate or otherwise about uh, Adnan's guilt. And so Caroline kind of outlined a bunch of things that she says, you know, these are points that get argued by people who think he's guilty, but I still don't feel like any of them bear any actual weight in proving that a non-killed hay. And so I, I thought that was a great, really thoughtful post. Caroline also included a photo of the sort of police rendering, the drawing, the sketch of the area that Hay's car was found. And just making the observation that the way Jay describes the area in which the car had been parked, one could make the argument or speculate that 
it sounds kind of like, and I think Susan Simpson mentioned this as well, it kind of sounds like you could just be looking at a drawing and even using some of the words that you would see written in the drawing to kind of be like, yeah, it was in this place, uh, you know. So um, that was interesting. And definitely the way that Jay describes it in his first interview is, like I said, and again, you could speculate either way on this, but the way what he describes is a place that, that you could get from photos from a drawing from a quick explanation, right? He doesn't say where it is, how to get there, but he says that it was, well, actually says Grassy Knoll, we learned in the in, this, in the second interview, right. um, that it didn't say that in the transcript, but he just says, yeah, it was like in this grass parking area behind some row homes, which is where, like, that's something that very easily can be shared with him, like, oh, we, well, we found the car in this grass parking lot behind some row homes. The point being that he didn't share any information that that couldn't have come from the police. That's what I was listening for the whole in the in the statement analysis from the whole first interview for me is what is Jay telling them that the police couldn't have known? And there's nothing. Everything is either stuff that we know that they knew or impossible. They absolutely could have known. Yeah. Just to get a point out some light friendly pushback from YouTube on uh, your comment about cars being stolen. Susan says my car was stolen and found in perfect shape about two weeks later. Sarah says, I've gotten stolen cars back in decent shape and parked in a random place like this was. Well, there you go. There you go. Richard says, I'm going to read the whole thing. Richard says, I do want to say something, Bob. You keep making a mistake saying that Jay said he led the police to the wrong spot in relation to Hayes' car. The reality is that they were talking about the trunk pop location. Is that right? I'd have to go back and look. It's from the. It's not from the police interview. It's from the trial transcript. Because the Gutierrez says you isn't. Did you? You know, it's one of those classic yeah. Gutierrez deliveries of like. But you did lead the police to a place that the car was not. Did you not? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and he said the. But and it he was a that, place that was not true. Was it not? Right. And he goes, the, the place was a lie or something that yeah. like he responded to it, something like that. Uh, but that being said, uh, however, Richard says, I do believe it can still be used to say Jay didn't know where his car was. As I have pointed out before, in Jay's first interview, the detectives asked him to take them to the car's location and also the location of the trunk pop. Jay responds that he would and that the two locations are just four blocks away from each other. Now, the location he took them to is, of course, more than four blocks away. If Jay knew where Hayes' car was, why would he say the Trump cop location was just four blocks away? Yeah, that's a good point. And I'll, and I'll have to review the trial transcript to see if that's that's what was going on there. Because, like I said, I know he's, he says that he read that led them to the wrong place. Maybe he was talking about the trunk pop location. But, yeah, to Richard's point, you know, even still, he says that the trunk pop happened four blocks away from where then the again, car was. And again, it's like, which which version of the trunk pop? There's a problem there, too. It's like, well, yeah. he's also said that that happened mm-hmm. multiple places. Sarah says, I thought I remembered that they didn't test the trunk liner from Hayes' car, or was it Adnan's car that they didn't test the liner? I'm not positive. But I don't think they t- they tested either one. I think there was, a, there was a shirt, I remember, in the back of Hayes' car that had some kind of like frothy blood on it or something that they tested. But I don't think that they tested the liner of either one, but I'll have to get back to you on that to be sure. Okay. Sarah says, wasn't Don the person who led them to the first satellite parking area? I think what you probably what you mean, Sarah, is, uh, if I may, is that he suggested that that would be a good place to check. Right. And then just to put a button on that. Do we have a record of the police having done just that and checked? No. So that's kind of the interesting part about it is the entirety of what we know from the case file about the satellite parking lot is. When Don is interviewed back when Hay is just missing very early on, 
He says that Hay told him that she wanted to go to California to go live with her father and that she would, if she was going to do it, she would probably go to the airport and park in the satellite parking lot and fly by commercial airline. He's very specific about those things, but he, so yeah, so, so that's when we first hear Don says she would probably park in the satellite parking lot. Then we have no evidence nowhere in the case file. Do they ever check the satellite parking lot? Likely because it's not in Baltimore County or Baltimore City. I'm drawing a blank. Grayson might pop in the chat and let us know. It's in a different county was where the airport is. So it's in neither of their jurisdictions. But then on the day Jen is interviewed is the next time it comes up that Sergeant Lehman orders for the satellite parking lot at the airport to be checked that day. And then that night, boom, we have the car. But it's in the city. It's not there. But it's just it's just an interesting coincidence that to me, it's a very it's, it's a red flag. Because it was so specific when you said, oh, I think she particularly because her father doesn't live in California. She wouldn't have said she may have mentioned that there was a guy over there, but certainly she wouldn't have. I don't think she would have been telling she wanted to leave and go there because she was so in love with Don and that she's a professional girlfriend to Don and blah, 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 blah. Also, I want to I want to move away to California. And then we get this very specific. She would park in the satellite parking lot and fly. And then six weeks later, they go check that satellite parking lot. And then the car turns up back in the city. Let me ask you this. And this is just benefit of the doubt, devil's advocate. And I'm, I, I'm not I don't have an opinion about this, but just out of fairness, that comes from the detective like Adcock's notes or O'Shea's notes about the conversation with Don. Right. It's not a transcript. It's not. It's like there. I, I think it's I think it's twice. I think I think it's, it's once with Mandy Johnson's interview with him okay. and then again with a follow up interview with Adcock. Okay. Word. Yeah. So okay. I, I believe it's twice. I just wanted to be twice. fair because, you know, we also have police notes that say that a friend of Adnan said, well, if I killed Hay, I would dump her body in her car in a, a lake, you know. And so I just wanted to be mindful of like, these are the if these are the same officers that we don't necessarily trust to relay the best information through their notes. If they were like, so Don, do you think she would leave her car in a parking lot and fly commercially to visit her father? And Don was like, I guess. And then they write that down as if it was his idea. I just yeah. wanted to be fair about that. But yeah, it's possible. I mean, the note the the notes say that, and I don't have any reason personally. I haven't I haven't seen any reason to suspect any wrongdoing on the part of Adcock and O'Shea. I mean, you can question about how good of a job they did on this at the beginning, but there, you know, we don't have we don't have like a list of times where they have. The types of things that Ritz and McGillivary have done. Okay. And Carrie says it was Mandy from the Inihi group. But talk about the fallacy of memory, because I thought I had a memory of one of the police officers relaying that he thought that she would have went to go see her father. I just it, totally blanked that it was I'll double Mandy. Check it, but yeah, I'll double check it. But Carrie is right for, for sure. The first time it comes up was with an is in an interview with Mandy Johnson from the Inihi group. But then I believe then and it was like in a second or third interview with police that they talked to him where it says they kind of pressed him where she would go. And then it's like repeated there also that Don said that she would, you know, she may be going to California to visit her father. And I believe the satellite parking lot is mentioned there as well. Okay, let's get into some phone stuff. Jonathan says, I listened to the prosecutor's episode. Bob does a great job of countering their argument regarding the accuracy of the incoming calls. Brett also makes the claim in the episode that everyone agrees that the outgoing calls are fairly accurate, despite then going on to describe the issue where the volume of calls to a tower can cause an unreliable outcome. Do you agree that the outgoing calls are a reliable piece of evidence as to the location of the phone at that time? 
they're more reliable than the incoming. But with any any type of call location data like this, yeah, you you have to consider that there are anomalies. You can't just say for sure, especially when we only have this basic report, right? We don't see the handoffs. We don't see where it switches towers. We don't see where it started on, what it ended on. We only have the initial connection. So even for an outgoing call, yeah, you could be standing right underneath the tower and that tower's busy. So your phone's going to connect to two towers away. And that's the problem where I I'd said this earlier in the season too, when you have a congested city like this that has towers right on top, you know, you have towers that are a mile apart that have two, three mile ranges. All the coverages are overlapping because it's a densely populated area, as opposed to, say, like the Pinion Pines case or season 12, where you have this this huge expanse of open terrain with towers that are miles apart. So, you know, like if you're hitting this tower, you you have to be somewhere probably in this range. But even then they can bounce around. So yeah, using cell location, cell connections for locations is definitely there are some people that will tell you like they're really the best that you can do with it is to say like you were in the city, right? Accurately, like you can with 100% accuracy almost for an outgoing call, you can say, okay, he made this call, he's somewhere in Baltimore, but he could be anywhere, you know, it didn't matter which one of these 10 towers he connected to, he could have been anywhere in that range. They What they tried to do with this one is they, in my opinion, what happened here is they know her body is found in Legan Park. And when they found pings to a sector that happened to cover that, then they built this entire story around that. It was like, well, that we have no evidence like that clearly because it, it completely backfired when Jay try, or should have backfired when Jay tries to get tell a whole story where he's trying to match everything. But it was like, well, we know she was buried in Lincoln Park. We have these two pings to a tower that covers Lincoln Park. So let's start there. That must have been the burial. And then we're going to build out around it. But no, the short answer is no. The accuracy even on outgoing calls is, is more accurate. But when you have a, a an area like this where all these towers are overlapping each other's coverage, it doesn't really do a whole lot for you. Well, and it's very seductive in that era, right? Because it's early days of cell phone stuff. So you could see how it would be very seductive. It's like, oh my God, wait a minute. This is like a treasure map to the truth. If you're looking for it, that can be kind of the danger, especially with new technology, where you're like, but what if this does prove something? It's like, well, now you've hung your hat on that. So watch out. Well, and, and imagine if this had been done like correctly. Like, even if you think Adnan's guilty, it's still you, you have to admit this was not done correctly. It's not okay for the cops to get a story and then to take the cell records and then sit down and then make him change his story completely to try to fit your cell phone records. Like that's not the way you do it. It's not okay. Right. But imagine if they just did it like don't even tell him you have cell records and just okay, tell me what happened. And he tells you the story. And then you compare it to the cell records and see, okay, is this possible? It, you know, in with the other evidence. And this is one of the things where I think it was in a previous episode where, where Alice is, yeah, well, they confronted him with the data. That's not how you can, you don't confront somebody with the data by saying, you said that you were at Lincoln Park burying the body at 830, but we know the cell phone was pinging there at seven o'clock. So when were you doing it? Oh, because what are they going to say? Oh, well, it was at seven o'clock, right? What you tell them is, I've looked at the cell phone data and I know the story you told me is bullshit. So tell me the truth. I know where the phone was and when it was there. You tell me what went down that's how you confront somebody but they didn't do that so and, and you wonder where this whole thing ends up if it's done that way as opposed to just very clearly trying to morph a story that fits what they think the cell phone data was telling them yeah solomon says did hey have a cell phone or pager could adnan have used her devices to call jay no cell phone that we're aware of um the only thing that we we're aware of is that she supposedly had a pager which was never recovered and as far as we know, they never got the pager records. Well, there you go. 
Chris says, I missed last week's follow-up, so I wanted to point something out about Jay's second interview. I'm not sure anyone else mentioned. At the end, when the questioning gets more pointed and Jay gets upset, at one point the detective is asking something along the lines of, why didn't you use the payphone at Best Buy and make an anonymous phone call to the police about Adnan driving around with the body in the trunk of the car? Did the detective forget that Jay had a cell phone in the car with him? I mean, they're using this phone to track everyone's movements and they don't ever say, why didn't you use the cell phone that's in the car with you to call the police? Yeah, I, I saw that post and it's, it's another good point. It's another thing that, and this is what I was kind of saying in this episode was like, it's a fool's errand to try to convince somebody that you know for sure that Jay didn't lead them to the car. Focus on things like there are so many instances. We covered a bunch of them last week. We've talked about so many, but there are so many instances like that where this entire story is gobbledygook. Like none of it makes any sense. Yeah. Why didn't you use the payphone to call? Like, I don't know. Why didn't you use the cell phone that was in your pocket? Right. You know, but, I mean, but, I'm like, sure the argument it. there would be like, well, then it's not anonymous because it's a cell phone. And that ultimately could be if it comes from a non's phone, everyone knows that I had a non's phone, then that can't be anonymous. Whereas if I'm at the payphone, I can make an anonymous call. I don't know. Yeah. And Nick made another good point in the in the YouTube chat. He was the one that was trying to get us to stall for him. Right. Uh, I saw you went three and oh in your game today, Nick. Good job. He said, why would Adnan call Hay to give him his number if he planned to kill her eight hours later? It's another good question. Yeah, because remember, the state's case is not that this is, you know, like Brett and Alice's final theory is is all that, you know, he gave her one last chance to take him back and then he killed her. But that's not the state's theory. The state's theory is that he made this whole plan. He got the phone for the sole intent and purpose of killing her. He made this whole plan to get a ride so that he could kill her. He told Jay the day before he was going to kill her, but he wanted to make sure she had his phone number. Another thing to add to the list. Yeah. And just to, again, kind of put a pin on that or put a bow around it. I don't know. Listen, why am I using all these metaphors? The idea there is obviously like we're not satisfied with just this type of murder or this type of manslaughter or this type of like we're if we're doing this, we're going to go for murder one premeditated. Let's just go ahead and make sure we check all of those boxes. I mean, doesn't that sort of feel like what's happening? Uh Personally, I think it has more to do with what do they have? They have Jay and a phone and they're both Jay's super weak, right? With this story, it's nothing makes sense. Nothing's adding up. So to me, I think part of it is we have to make the phone a bigger part of this, Mm. almost a distract from Jay. And it it could be either one, right? But but I could see it like he got the phone as part of the planning because it was convenient that he got that he got the day before. So I I tend to think that it was that it was more to do with that. And also, I think part of it was probably to get their hooks into Jay, right? They needed Jay to confess to being a part of this so that they had something on him. So by Jay knowing the day before, now he's an accessory to murder, not an accessory after the fact. He's mm. an accessory to murder. Good point. So now they have him. They can't get him to back out. I mean, we'll never know. That's all we can just speculate. Yeah. Um, anyway, but that's kind of how I, I always saw it was Jay's evidence is too weak. They have Jay in the phone, so they need to make the phone a bigger part of it. Got it. Um, Kathy just wants to circle back to the the whole drama around whether or not there's a, a phone at the Best Buy and just kind of readdress, like, is there a call that matches what would have been that call from the Best Buy? Presumably, that is the whole issue around the incoming calls. 
why they have to pick a call time that doesn't really match anything that anyone says. I mean, is that fair to say? Because Kathy's like, I'm so confused. Like, she's like, we've gone so deep in the weeds on whether there was a payphone there. Just circle back with me on the cell phone records and tell me, where's that call? Yeah, well, I mean, so, and again, I've, I've said this several times, but the problem here is Jen has a lawyer and Jen put a story on the record. Jen was abundantly clear. She left at 4.15 to pick up her parents. Jay left right before that, right? So they're locked into that. They can't go back to her. They can't change her story. They're stuck with that now forever. So, and that's why we see, because no, the answer, the short answer is no, there is no call. You have, you have a 2.36 incoming call, and then you have a 3.15 incoming call, and then the next one is the Nisha call at, at 3.30 which they need that to be, again, to try to make the story stronger. That has to be part of it, too. So they already ha- they have to have already been con- reconnected at that point. And Jen's very clear the call. Jay didn't leave until 345, close to 4 o'clock. So the, the short answer is no, there is no call that matches it. But that's why Jay's second interview, we get that whole what the F is he talking about where it's he called. No, the call came. Oh, he called on the landline, right? Because they know they have the cell phone. They know they there's no call on the cell phone records that matches. Oh, he called on the landline, which then cuts then back against the fact that the whole idea they got the phone was so that he could use the phone for him to call Jay after the murder. But now he's calling on the landline. But then Jay says he's not there while he calls on the landline. It's never reconciled. There's never that Jay never, ever tells a story about the come get me call that actually lines up with the phone records. That never happens. At one point, he says Adnan called him three times, twice on the or once on the cell phone, twice on the landline. While he's at Jen's and he leaves and then Adnan calls, none of it makes sense. As far as the Best Buy phones, like another one of those things I said in this episode, this has been debated over and over and over again. Was there really a payphone at Best Buy? That was like 20 minutes of the prosecutor's episode was I'm talking about, well, here it is right here in I mean, these what notes. If, what if we just had the records of the incoming calls? Yeah. What if we just knew those? What if, because I see Sarah, your note, Sarah says, uh, why couldn't they just get the number to the payphone to confirm the call? Well, we do not have phone numbers for the incoming calls. That's your like random all color Uno card where you can just be like, cool, we don't have the data on that. So we can just pick and choose and assign whatever and whomever we want to those incoming calls. Right. Yeah. And I don't, I don't understand how they don't have the data. We have like it's we've mind boggling. Even like Pinion Pines, right? 2006. It's seven years later. But like. We have the incoming number, like the call detail report that we get from them is the call came from this phone to this phone. I don't know why we just have incoming and this, and why they didn't pull the the full call detail report that would show all the rest of this information on it. As far as like the phone at Best Buy, like again, I started to say they, they spend like 20 minutes going, well, Adnan in this interview said that he wouldn't walk from the car to the payphone. And that's proof there was a payphone. Like, okay, maybe. Or that they just told him that the police told him that there was a payphone, and he's like, "Well, I wouldn't walk over there." Like, who knows? Or they suggest, who knows? But again, as I pointed out, what does it matter if there was a payphone? In Jay's first story, there never even were at Best Buy. They were on the complete ass other side of town when this happened. Like, it's just, it's such a weird thing to me. And, I, and believe me, I got caught up in it too back at the beginning. You know, eight years ago, we're coming. This like, was well, there? That's fine. There's the blueprints to Best Buy, and where's the payphone? And this person says there was a payphone, and then like now I look back and like, who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah. Like, like it doesn't like because as I said, it doesn't prove or disprove anything. So if there was in fact for sure a payphone at Best Buy, what does that prove? Yeah, that's kind of what Caroline, that was one of the points that, that Caroline pointed out in, in that Facebook post that I mentioned earlier is like, there's these things that become so in the weeds. 
that you're like, okay, but even if all these things are quote unquote true, what does that prove again? Anyway. Um, so yeah, to yeah. The point, this, this was 1999. There were payphones everywhere. If there was a payphone there, that doesn't mean like we still don't have a call that matches. None of the stuff adds up. So that's one of those things. You know, I'll concede to the people on the guilty side. There was a payphone. You win that one. Cool. Okay. Just a couple more. Nick is kind of asking the, the question again about the, the narrative. He says, who created the narrative that a lot of people at the school had said that, hey, was just going to up and leave for California? So we've established that Dawn is the person who said that, hey, said that she would go to California, that he thought that she would go to California. Right. But I guess Nick is taking it to the next step and saying, who is responsible for now growing that out to mean everyone at school thought that, hey, it gone to California? Like, did it, that come went, from somewhere prior to these folks talking about it? Yeah. So it came from, we, we have in the record, like, like that story was initiated with Dawn. And then Dawn ends up having that whole seven hour conversation with Debbie. And then Debbie brings that back to the school. And then, and then that's where the conversation gets it. Because remember in that one file, that was one of the, the misstatements by the prosecutors in their episode. They, you know, they said, well, Adnan just thought that, that Hay had run off to California. And then you read the report they were reading from and what it actually says. And it was Debbie who said everyone thought that Hay was with Don. And then they must have asked about the California thing because she said, no, the California rumor didn't come out until later. And that's what it was. So at first, everybody thought, because according to the witnesses, she had told people she was leaving to go hang out with Don. He's 20 years old. You know, who knows what they might have run off together? Who knows what's going on? Everybody assumed that's what was going on. And then after Debbie talks to Don, the California rumor comes in. So that's where that narrative came from. It originated with Don. And I should say, I believe that that's probably the connection where it comes back into the group. Mm. We do have clear record that nobody thought that at the beginning. And then that's what people thought later. And we do know that Debbie is the one that talked to Don. For uh, seven hours? Yeah. Don't you remember like that, that whole? Oh, I yeah, know. That, the, yeah. That whole seven hour phone conversation. I mean, that's. So that. Yeah. There's a lot of things that there. I mean, obviously, there's the, the ultimate question is the most important one and the one that we want to solve and we want to see solved. There are also a bunch of small things that we all know kind of keep us up at night. And the contents of a seven hour phone call will haunt me forever. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Anyway, okay. Kelsey says, are you going to talk more about Jay's drive along with the police? Maybe in a follow up. I, the prosecutors didn't get into it. So I, I just kind of addressed it a little bit. And I don't want to keep dragging this out any longer. But I will tell you that I remember in the, it all, all we have is notes, right? There's just notes about where he took them. Essentially, it's this. They wanted Jay to drive them along and they kept a time log of how long it took to do all this stuff. And none of it fucking worked. And so they had like redo stuff and he keeps going back and forth. I don't I don't believe it's ever any of it's all reconciled. But yeah, they just have him drive around all these points and they do again. It's very clear in there again that when he takes Adnan back, he drives him back to the school, to the front circle, drops him off at the front door, all that stuff. But yeah, um, I believe what I can do for you is I believe I've already done it on the website, on our website, in the case docs. I believe it's titled Jay's third interview, but the, those notes are on our website if you want to read them for yourself and see where uh, all that was. I don't, I don't want to do a whole other episode dragging all that stuff out, but you can go read it for yourself. Got it. Shannon has some questions um, and Valeria has uh, some some follow up thoughts about it. But I feel like we've done a pretty good job of talking about why we feel that Jay doesn't have an incentive to come forward now. I feel like we've covered that. Do you feel like that's fair to say? I feel like we talked about that kind of a lot about why we are. I don't like remember. I've had conversations on Twitter about it. I don't have been here, but but essentially it's this. Because because that that's one of the new the new arguments that has come out now. Right. As, as soon as you start pressing back with facts or like. What I'd seen people writing is, 
if this is all bullshit, why wouldn't Jay? And I think Brett and Alice even said it in their episodes. Why wouldn't Jay come forward now when Serial came out? It's the perfect opportunity for him to be the hero. And they're just like, we just don't believe that he wouldn't come forward now with the truth. And my response to that is simply is like, you cannot know how many layers of problems you have to do that. Like if you're saying like, if it was me, I would. Okay, maybe you would. But you have everything like you, you have concerns for perjury charges. You have the fact like, sure, he can be the hero. He can be the guy that come be the hero and tell the world that he sent a man away to prison for 20 years, took his entire early adult life away from him from the time he was 17 on because he was lying. Who knows you know, what community hangs out with, what kind of friends he has now. But he's also saying, oh, I was a snitch. And not only was I a snitch, but I lied on somebody to do like it's not as simple as, well, he'd be the hero. Why not do it? And I'm not telling you those are the reasons. What I'm telling you is there are plenty of reasons that someone could come up with. And then you, you factor in their personality and there's a lot that goes in there. So just I'll say this. I do not accept the argument that Jay absolutely would come forward now because he could be a hero. That's bullshit. You don't Couldn't know what's more. going on with Jay. Couldn't agree more. You can't use that logic is is so flimsy. I, I it's not even it's almost not worth discussing, but it's a great question. It's a fair question. What it leads into is questions that people have about whether or not Jay could have been a CI. And that's something that Valeria had also thought about was wondering, you know, we there's the reference in one of Jay's interviews about having been arrested, quote, just the one time. And so, you know, that's that's not a new conversation. There's definitely been speculation about that in the past. And folks are wondering if you think that the the whole criminal informant, you know, CI thing could be a, a possibility. Well, I mean, there's no doubt about it. He was a CI in this case, by definition. But in other cases, I again, we can speculate. I don't know. I don't think so. And I say that because of his visceral reaction to that part of the conversation you're addressing. Like, And I've said this, I think, three times, three weeks in a row. But to me, that was the first time we heard Jay being really honest was when he was like, yo, I got a record a mile long. And they're like, well, you've only been arrested one time. And he's like, one time, one time well, on the record one time. I had my ass kicked plenty of times. They knocked me down. You know, he definitely, through that description of what has happened to him, I didn't get the impression that he's had this like long relationship with cops. It's possible. I don't know. I'm That's certainly, that is absolutely me reading tea leaves. So take it for what it's worth. But in my opinion, probably not, but I, I have no idea. Or that he did after the fact. Yeah. Because I think well, there were it, also some issues that came up where there were some citations or some, you know, and then some kind of like, huh, no lots charges. And lots of, yeah. yeah, lots and lots of times after this, Jay has always been protected. He's never spent any time in jail. Undisclosed talked about this quite a bit. They actually went through all the records, but yeah. he was arrested for several, you know, for drug charges, violent charges, he, you know, beating up his baby's mother, girlfriend, like all these things. And he would get arrested and even on the docu the documentary, his ex, the, the mother of his child, you know, even said like, he just like, he beat the living shit out. They took pictures her her faces all beat up and bruised up, but somehow he got out of it. He got out of it. And so there are theories that he continued to be a CI for him and that's why they protected him. There are theories that it's because of this case that he continued to be protected because they needed him not to spill the beans on what he did with, with this one. So they kept him out of jail for that. But what you had to be aware of was their theories. Their theories, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all I have for this week. So. Perfect. Well, I definitely want to thank you for coming in still. I don't remember if we said this on the record once we started recording, but Janet is still sick. Uh, Zach Gift under that the keeps weather. on giving. I know. We miss Zach. Yeah. Obviously, we always miss Zach. Yeah. By, uh, by next week, hopefully everybody will be healthy. Maybe we'll have all three of us for one episode. I will do this for you guys, though. I'm going to leave you with this because uh, somebody asked in the, in the chat when I mentioned the new case. I've been thinking about it while I've been recording this. I will give you guys this piece. 
Somebody said, can you at least give us a hint on what state that the new case for season 15 is? And I will do that for you. And we're going to end with this. The new case is from Michigan. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com designed, created, manages, and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kaywood Yomnik, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth, Janet can be found at Janet Varney, and Zach is at Z to the Q. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been and justice.